Welcome to the Story Apothecary, a podcast filled with medicinal and healing stories. My name is Nana Tomova, and I'm a storyteller and a pharmacist, and stories and medicines which I dispense. In this podcast, you will find my prescriptions of stories for the body, mind, heart, and soul. So I invite you to join me as we enter the healing world of stories together. Hello everybody, thank you so much for joining me again in the Story Apothecary. I'm really excited to be recording another episode. As always, a great thank you to all my Patreon supporters for making this possible. This episode is slightly different in that I'll be doing my very first interview with another storyteller. And there will be, of course, a story at the end. And it's so wonderful to welcome Daniel Allison onto the podcast. Daniel, hello. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Very well, thank you. Great. I'm really excited to have you on. Uh, so Daniel is a storyteller. He's an author from Scotland. He produces a podcast called The House of Legends, which is wonderful. And I, I love uh, joining in and listening to the stories that you tell. Um, where he features his myths, legends, and folklore from all across the world. Daniel had written a, a novel called The Shattering Sea and a beautiful story collection called Scottish Myths and Legends, which I'm thoroughly enjoying reading at the moment. So I'd love to, um, I'd love to speak to you about your creative process, your storytelling, your work. So uh, thank you very much for joining me today. No problem. I love chatting about this stuff. It's <laughs> no problem at all. Me too. Um, so I was wondering, um, to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about your books and the process that you use in writing them? Yeah, um, well, I wanted to be a writer a long time before I wanted to be a storyteller because I didn't know storytelling existed until about 10 years ago. Uh, so I always wanted to write fantasy, epic fantasy, and I got serious about that uh, in my late 20s, around the same, pretty much exactly the same time as I discovered oral storytelling. Mm -hmm. So these kind of, these two things went on concurrently. I was trying to figure out my first um, fantasy series while also um, getting really immersed in the world of oral storytelling. And I think after about seven years of this, I finally produced um, something approaching a, a decent uh, novel, I thought. And I found that the storytelling had, had really come into that. It, I'd seen it as quite a separate thing before, and um, perhaps stupidly. But then I found that my main character went to live for a while with a troop of traveling play players and storytellers. And the stories they told really informed their worldview and informed the story. And um, so I could see how the two are really coming together. Um, that book hasn't been released. It was, um, it was, well, I don't think it's quite good enough to be released yet. It's one I decided to come back later in my career, do some more work on it. But after that, I decided to change tack a bit and write something based on a story that I tell. Uh, I do lots of work in schools and I always had kids saying, oh, have you got a book we can read? And I would say no, or well, yes, I'm working on one, but it's for adults. And they go, oh. So I thought, okay, I want to write something that is um, enjoyable for both children and adults in the way that the best stories uh, appeal to children and adults equally. For me, there's, you know, there's no difference really. 
um, when you're listening to the best stories. Uh, so I wanted to take a story I was telling and just expand on it. So I ended up taking a story called Atipatl and the Muckle Maester Stirworm uh, from Orkney, which means Atipatl and the really, really, really big worm or serpent. So this is a story probably derived from the Norse influence in Orkney. Uh, of course, the Norse have uh, Ormangander, the world serpent that encircles the world and bites in his own tail. And in Orkney, they have this story of uh, giant uh, serpents coming out of the sea and devouring villages and so on. And a young boy going on this uh, quest to destroy it and win the hand of uh, Princess Gem de Lovely. And so I, uh, I'd, I was just thinking about this story. I'd always got this sense, you know, you get this sense with some stories. I don't know if you have the same experience that there's so much more waiting behind the story. Like it was like, I, I felt like there was a trapdoor somewhere in the story and there, I could discover so many more layers if I could find it. So I spent some time with it and I found a trapdoor and this whole plot came spilling out. Uh, so I ended up um, writing what became The, the Shattering Sea, uh, which is the first part of a series uh, ranging across Iron Age, Scotland and Northern Europe and based uh, very heavily on Scottish myths, legends and folklore. Mm. So, yeah, that's one strand of the books. And then the other thing is I write retellings of myths and legends. Um, I've got a series called Celtic Myths and Legends Retold, uh, which is what it says on the tin. Uh, the first one came out uh, that you mentioned, Scottish Myths and Legends, that came out in May. And the second one, Finn and the Fiona, which is a retelling of the Fiona cycle of stories that's coming out in September. Mm. I really look forward to that one. I've got my eye on it. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Uh, it, it sounds great and um, it sounds like they really influence each other so uh, the the story informs the novels and the process of writing and, and asking questions of the story and asking questions of the lead characters really informs the storytelling so it's a it's kind of like a, a mesh entwined it's a really beautiful process like a dance I, I imagine it's a bit like that yeah yeah it is and I love that I love the, the way these two influence each other and the way that it's a, a dance between them. And it's, I love that it's something I never would have imagined I was doing. You know, I, I would be doing, you know, this particular combination of uh, oral storytelling and, and uh, fiction writing. And yeah, it's, it's really influenced these, the fiction writing has really influenced my storytelling style as well. I remember the first time I worked on quite a big story after I finished Nara, which was my post-apocalyptic novel. And I was just like, whoa, this is different from anything I've worked on before. It was uh, The Six Swans. And there was a, I just suppose I could, I found I could get to know the characters much better. And the sense of the landscape in the story was much more powerful. Mm. I don't know how much it influenced other people's perception of the story, like my telling. Um, but for me, it changed my relationship to the story very much. Mm. Oh, wow. Interesting, how wonderful. You mentioned landscape, and I, I wonder if the landscape that you live in um, influences the stories that you tell or the novels that you write, and, and what is that process? Hugely, hugely. Uh, lots of things, of course, uh, everything you've ever done and dreamed uh, and read influences uh, your writing, but I think the, the landscape is the influence above all others. Uh, I have, I see it as this, yes, yeah, it's, it's like a dance as well. It's, 
you know, you, you, you meet someone, you fall in love with them, or you see an amazing play or concert and you just have to say, oh, wow, that was amazing. And you have to tell people, or you have to say, oh my gosh, I love this person. I need to write uh, her and his love poem. Yeah, you need to you need to express uh, this thing you're feeling, and I think for me, I really love Scotland. I love Sky. I love Orkney. I love the Central Highlands, and I just have to write fiction in response uh, in response to what I feel and what I see and experience. And then it's then it's kind of back and forth. It feels like the two kind of influence each other. You know, I can't go to Orkney or I can't go to Sky without being immersed in the world of the stories that I've created there. Um, so it's, yeah, it's this ongoing um, back and forth relationship that I don't understand and I don't really want to understand because I, I love the elusive nature of it. Mm. Oh, it's beautiful. Um, I went to Sky for the first time last year in April uh, after a, mm. a long time wanting to go. I, I love going to Scotland on a regular basis and um, I wrote poems on the rocks while having uh, my feet in the cold sea and I sang to the seals as I was working on a, on a telling of, uh, of the selfie skin wow. and it really it really changed that for me and I, I really wanted to go in a specific place where I could see uh, the mountains the black coolins and I could see the waves and I could see the seals and really feel what it will be like to be the Selkie or feel what it will be like to be in that inner landscape and it completely changed it for me. It gave me um, like this this depth of knowing in the bottom of my belly which I hadn't known before. So it's uh, yeah I also think like you that the landscape magnificently changes uh, our relationship with what we tell in a most beautiful way. Mm. Mm. Mm, yeah absolutely. Mm. And so when I suppose when you tell that story, you're very much there. You're in that spot looking over the Cullens and you I imagine you feel something of the, the energy or the power of that place comes through in the telling. Yeah, the climate, uh, the air, the coldness, the crispness in a way that I hadn't felt it before because I had never been there. Mm. Um, yeah, the stone underneath my feet, everything makes a difference. It's like a, it's just a memory, a, tr a trigger point to go back and and uh, and find myself there again. Yeah, definitely. And you know, it's, I think there's a risk with the way we live and the way we tell stories. It's great that we pick up stories um, from other cultures and other places, but we're at risk of our storytelling becoming quite disembodied because mm. we're not intimately relating to one place and telling stories that we say, you know, happened to our uncle Tom right over there. But, you know, making these connections with particular places and sitting there and telling the story to a place or dreaming the story in that place really profoundly deepens the relationship. Yes. Yes, I agree. One of our, one of my teachers, Shirley Cumbers, I don't know if you know her, she's a, a, a tradition bearer, a dripzilla, and um, she, tells she says to tell a story if you can tell it well and to ask loads of different questions from the story and it, it's it's exactly what you say you know find out about the culture what was it like at that point what was the country like in that point why did the character do this why did they wear that why did they think you know and uh and it makes it makes such a difference to know your characters like and to talk to them like i'm talking to you now and to, mm. to see see them in your mind's eye um and to really have that you know it comes back to that word again, relationship with the story and with the characters. 
um, it's really important, really interesting. <laughs> yeah, and that's what that's what makes it so satisfying. I think doing all this work it is the relationship, and um, that you can create. You know, it's 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 of course it's great fun telling a story, and it's interesting to learn different stories. So I've not heard that one before, but when it's something that you actually relate to and you carry with. And there's, you know, there's nothing more satisfying in life than the, the deepening, the ongoing deepening of our relationship, be it with a place or a story or a person uh, over many years. That's, that's why I do it, I think. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well said. So, Tony, um, we spoke a little bit about uh, working on, on Celtic Mixed and Legends. Is there a particular project that you're working on now? Yes, uh, storytelling-wise, I'm working on uh, telling of the Dharmad and Gronya story, or cycle of stories, you could say, uh, which is uh, part of the, the Fianna cycle. So these are stories from Ireland and Scotland, in case listeners aren't familiar with them. And the Dharmad and Gronya story uh, is the central story, really, I would say, of uh, the Fianna cycle, in which uh, Finn's bride elopes uh, with his friend and one of his chief men, Dharmid, uh, on the night of their wedding. And it leads to a uh, breaking apart uh, of the Fianna. Uh, it's a story that I already knew, but when I was working on the book, I got to know much better because there's lots of, it's a whole series of stories. And I imagine there was probably a dozen times as many stories that have been lost because um, all these different episodes of the pursuit of Darman and Gronia across Ireland by Finn, the different places they stayed and the different ways in which they eluded him. Uh, so I, I got to be really, really passionate about this story uh, while I was working on the book. And so I wanted to make a staged uh, version of it, mm. uh, which has been really exciting. There's still a lot of work to do because it's quite complex because there's no way you could tell it in uh, the version I have uh, in an hour or even an hour and a half or two hours. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of, I'm experimenting, experimenting a little different parts of it and see how they might be told because obviously it's quite different on the stage as opposed to on the page. And also working with a musician, Kirsty Law. And we've very for been very fortunate in getting funding uh, from the Hope Scott Trust uh, to develop this uh, it's been delayed because of covid but yeah we're working on that um, we had a festival date for it but I, that's also up in there because uh, of covid so i can't confirm that but yeah hopefully we will have it uh, on stage somewhere uh, before the end of the year definitely next year if not how exciting that sounds amazing what a wonderful thing i hope so <laughs> Um, and then I'm also working on the sequel to The Shattering Sea, uh, mm -hmm. which is called The Spay Queen. Uh, so that's, uh, again, set in Orkney, but it's a uh, broadening story out into some other places, into Pharaoh and into um, the mainland of Scotland and Scandinavia. And also have a little side project, um, a book called The Jaguar King, which is a collection of shamanic myths and legends, uh, stories of transformation uh, from around the world. So I'm just doing little bits on that here and there. Uh, that should be out before the end of the year. Exactly. Uh, so that's keeping me going. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Oh, it's uh, they sound really fantastic. I'm really liking what I'm hearing. I'll, I'll be delving deep into into the books and reading all the stories. And sometimes I can go at different speeds. Sometimes I can go in and read them really quickly because I'm I'm you know immersed in them so much. And sometimes some stories are so rich that I just need to, to close the book and really think about it and sleep on it and come back. Um, so it takes me different speeds to, to read different things. 
Right. Yeah, I get I get story and digestion very easily. <laughs> I can like saying it. <laughs> like one, two stories, then I feel a bit like, oh, I feel a bit sick. No, that's that's enough for now. Mm. Uh, there's so so much in them. So yeah, a story book can take a long time. Yeah. I do love when a collection of stories is very readable too, and they do flow together. So I'm sort of trying to achieve that, but at the same time recognizing that I'd be happy to give people indigestion. That makes sense. <laughs> it does. It does. Throw them up the story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned Orkney a couple of times. Is that somewhere where you've visited or lived in? No, I haven't. Well, I haven't lived there. I've, I've visited there. It's it's my dream to live in the Highlands. Um, I spend quite a lot of time sort of looking at plots of property, uh, plots of land and sky and Lewis and uh, Sutherland and dreaming. But I haven't lived up there yet uh, for various reasons. But you know, I've got my got my plan. Um, Orkney just came about uh, because I was interested in the story of Asipato and I had some ideas for it and decided to go up there and check it out and see it, see how I got on with the place. Uh, so I ended up going up. I had this idea, unfortunately, unfortunately or fortunately, in the middle of winter. So I went up there. Um, I went up to Lewis for this winter solstice, then came back and a few days later, I went up and spent uh, New Year, uh, about 10 days, two weeks uh, in Orkney, uh, just going out and to a different island every day and walking around, um, walking on the beaches, sitting in the tombs and you know getting to know the land a bit and it really really spoke to me and so that was what confirms that this, this novel was a go and um, so I've been up there since then and well we'll, we'll be going back regularly thankfully got some friends I can stay with there now yeah. stay there with me yeah it's what, it's what you were saying before so how some places just take hold of us and uh and really they they don't let us go or maybe we don't let them go it's um it sounds like that's one for you yeah, definitely. I think the thing I like best when I'm working on these books, when I wake up in the morning, I just think, oh, I get to go to Orkney. I get to <laughs> hang out in Orkney for the morning. And that's just great, whatever I'm doing there. Yeah, it's a yeah, wonderful way to describe it, of reading a book or working on a book. She's really travelling, travelling to that place where it's at. Yeah, I read, I read something in, recently which really interested me, which was that for children I can't remember the age group the, the tone or the atmosphere of a story is apparently some study says that the atmosphere of the story is just as important as the content of the story the plot and I found that so interesting because I found that whenever I was speaking about my books or someone was asking me about them what I was kind of most excited about and wanted to convey but could never quite manage to was the atmosphere the mood the feeling the tone of it and I felt that was one of the most important things was just the, the, the atmosphere of the book. Yeah, that's not something we ever really hear talked about. We talk about the characters and the story. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if that just means I'm a big child or no. maybe there's something in the oral stories in which the, the atmosphere is as important as the content. I don't know. What do you think? I think it's really important, like you, so when you're having a conversation with somebody, you will get that. So they will say something and you get, um, you know, you get that your hair stand up on your arm and you, you can almost get that energy or things change as they speak. 
and it makes the conversation it makes the flow three-dimensional and it's really difficult and really important to get that from a story or get that from a novel uh, because it gives a different layer you almost know what you're feeling if you are in that character's shoes or if you're watching from the side it, it gives a different depth I think it's not done very often but when mm. it's done well it's amazing mm. it's, it's another thing that excites me about the old stories uh, and that makes me want to write fiction based on them is they just made me think of this is that for our ancestors uh, a lot of the time belief in fairies was real the fairies were real mm-hmm. selkies were real fin folk uh, were real so when they were telling these stories it was a very different thing if it, as opposed to some a story which you find entertaining or of which you think is wonderful and beautiful but if you actually believe these creatures were around you and were you believe that magic was real and was not something you know, glamorous and a bit edgy but you know very real and very dangerous and frightening how much of a different thing was it to hear these stories uh, so I, th- I think if we can evoke something of that uh, through the tone of our telling, then we're perhaps giving a much, much richer experience in our storytelling. If we can evoke something of a world in which these are possibly real, not just entertainment. Yes, there's gravitas to them and they are important. Yeah. They are important. Mm. And as storytellers, we have that privilege but you also have that responsibility to keep them important and to keep them true as true as they can be yeah um and so we both work with so many stories and your podcast is filled with so many beautiful stories from all around the world and and all the stories contain so much wisdom and and can be such healers what wisdom have you learned from stories that you can tell us about i think the most important thing I've learned is expressed uh, most poignantly in, in the Fiona stories, uh, which is this sense that it seems the Celts had that life is to be embraced in its every aspect. That we don't take a story and say, oh, that was a great story. That, that bit was good. That bit was good. That bit was bad. I didn't like that bit. Yeah, we'd be better without that bit. You know, we love we love it as a whole, and I feel like the the Celtic stories and the Fiona stories in particular um, embody this embrace of every shade, every aspect of life, from the hunt to the feast, to the fight, to falling in love, to heartbreak, to grief, to all of it, all of it, to 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 war, uh, to warriorhood, and I think it's really beautifully expressed in the dialogue between Oshin and Patrick. I don't know if you're familiar uh, with the story in which Oshin goes off to Tirnanog and he comes back and the world of the Fianna has passed away and uh, Christianity has come to Ireland and he ends up living with St. Patrick and Oshin uh, is an old man uh, at this stage and so is Patrick and the two of them sit and have these wonderful kind of friendly arguments and uh, Patrick's telling Oshin that he must repent and renounce his pagan ways and you know, embrace the light of God, otherwise you'll never go to heaven. And Anishin's saying, well, I really don't like the sound of heaven very much, actually. And he says, um, is, is Finn, is Finn McCool, is he in heaven? He says, no, no, he's a sinner. And he's in hell. And he says, well, 
if he's in hell, then he must like it there. Otherwise, he would have just climbed out of it. And he says, are there dogs in heaven? He says, no, of course there aren't any dogs in heaven. Dogs don't go into heaven. He says, well, why would any sane man go to heaven if there weren't any dogs there? And I, I, just, I think that's such a great expression, expression of it all, that, that this world can be paradise. This world can be the other world. In fact, it's more perfect than Tiernanok. Because when Ashin goes to Tiernanok, the land of milk and honey, where everything is wonderful and everyone's happy all the time, he just gets bored. Mm. You know, who, who wants that? It's good for a while. Um, Sharon Blackie um, uh, referred to this uh, section in story, The Voyage of Bran, where Bran is on a voyage out west and um, Manan and MacLear rises up out of the sea and says, where do you think you are? And he says, oh, I think I'm on a boat uh, on the sea. And uh, Manan says, no, actually, you're on uh, a field, uh, such and such a place, can't remember exactly where. And, um, and Sharon Blackie was saying, you know, this, this may be a way of them saying, you know, this uh, magical other world is actually that world, the world you live in every day. And I, th I think those of us who get interested in healing um, in the West and in sp spiritual matters, I think there could be this kind of knee-jerk tendency to feel like we need to turn our backs on the world to some extent or to sort of pure our purify ourselves out of it. And I don't know whether that comes from it's a sort of hangover from Christianity or a misunderstanding of Eastern religions um, but I, I don't go in for that. I kind of feel if, what's the point of being born at all in this world if you're not going to embrace it. So I think stories in their, the, the beauty with which they portray every aspect of life and the celebration of life uh, in all its aspects, which stories encourage, that's, that's what they've given me. Mm. Yes, uh, so rich. It reminds me of the Rumi poem, this, this being human is a guest house. Can we hear it? Okay. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honourably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door, laughing, and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Yes. <laughs> that puts it much better than I ever could. It's um, it just reminded me from when you were speaking of that poem of, you know, welcoming it all and living wholeheartedly and wholly, uh, with a W H, uh, in the world, with you know all the greys and all the brights, because they are all part of part of what it makes and the difficult days make the easy days more joyous and the fields you know the fields are really wonderful and sometimes we do turn them back our backs to them like you say so mm. thank you it's yeah. a beautiful wisdom to take from stories couldn't think of anything better and i wonder if we can hear a story from you yes yes we absolutely could 
Uh, the story I would like to uh, tell you is a story called Death in a Nut. Uh, it's from uh, my book, Scottish Myths and Legends. It's one I heard from Donald Smith, who's the director of the Scottish International Storytelling Festival, who um, met you, I'm sure you'll meet one day. He's wonderful. And I believe he heard it from Duncan Williamson. I know it's one that Duncan Williamson uh, used to tell quite a lot. Right. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> so this is the story of death in a nut. And they say that on the west coast of Argyll in Scotland, a boy called Jack once lived with his mother. And they had a wee croft where they grew potatoes and turnips and carrots. And they kept a goat for the milking and some hens for their eggs. Now every morning, Jack would leave his house early to go walking on the beach before breakfast. And he'd search for crabs among the rock pools and he'd look for driftwood to bring home for the fire. And one morning in summer, Jack was strolling along the shore when he saw a man walking towards him. And this man, he wore a long black coat, he had black hair, black beard, black hat. His trousers and his boots, they were black too. And in his hand, he held a scythe. The black clad man approached Jack. He looked at Jack and as their eyes met, his gaze turned Jack's blood to ice. What's your name? asked the man, his voice as cold and sharp as his sight. Jack, said Jack, what's your name? Death, said the man. And the crash of the surf became a whisper. I wonder if you could help me, Jack, said Death, stroking his scythe blade. I'm, uh, I'm looking for someone. Who are you looking for? Your mother. My my mother? Yes, said Death. I know your house is near here, but um, I'm not sure exactly where, so be a good lad and point me in the right direction. And uh, at that point, Jack had been kind of transfixed by Death. He came to his senses. The surf was singing and the, the gulls were screeching and he was not going to let Death take his mother. Jack threw himself at Death. Death was tall and strong, but Jack was quick and he took him by surprise. He tackled Death, bringing him down to the ground. Jack was the best wrestler among the boys in his village, as it happened, and he put his skills to very good use. He wrapped himself around Death and pinned him down so that Death couldn't move a single limb. Uh, what to do now, thought Jack. You see, he didn't let Death go. He looked around to see if there was a bit of rope nearby that he could bind death with, but he couldn't see any bits of rope. But he did see a hazelnut shell. That gave him an idea. Jack squeezed to death and he folded him over and he folded death again and again and again and again until he could fit him in the palm of his hand. 
So when that was done, he took the hazelnut shell and he stuffed death into it, he pressed the shell closed, put it in his pocket. He looked and he saw that death's scythe was still lying on the sand. Jack hid it in a nearby sea cave and then he strode home, the nut in his pocket, whistling a merry tune. So not long after that, Jack arrived home to find his mother boiling water for tea over the fire. Good morning, Jack, she said. Did you find anything interesting at the beach? No, said Jack. Well, why are you looking at me like that, Jack? Jack realised he was staring at his mother. She, she would be dead now if he hadn't put death in the nut. And it made him realise how much he loved her. So he ran over to her and he squeezed her and he kissed her cheek. Would you like eggs for breakfast, mother? I'll make them. Oh, I, I, I would, thank you, said Jack's mum, touched by you know, his sudden show of affection. So Jack went out to the hen house, came back with some eggs. He removed the kettle from the hook over the fire and he put the girdle in its place. Smeared butter over the girdle, took an egg and cracked it off the side, but the egg wouldn't crack. Tough eggs, these, said Jack. He tried again, a bit harder. Still, the egg wouldn't crack. Jack Hit the egg again, again, against the girdle, harder and harder, but not a sliver of a crack did he make in the eggshell. Well, let me have a go, said Jack's mum. She had no luck either. Uh, there, there must be something wrong with that egg. Try another one, she said. So Jack tried another egg, but do you think he did any better? Nope. And he was getting frustrated now. So he held the egg up high and he started smashing down on the girdle with all his wee boy strength. No good. He took a knife from a drawer and he tried that. No good. He took a hammer from the drawer, set the egg down on the kitchen worktop and he beat the egg with the hammer until he had no strength left. Um, uh, maybe we'd better have carrots today, said Jack's mum. Uh, we out and get some carrots from the garden. So Jack did it his mother, as his mother asked and returned with some big fat carrots. Chop them up and fry them, said Jack's mum. So Jack washed the carrots, he took the knife and he went to chop them, but, well, what do you think happened? The knife wouldn't go through them. The carrots too, said Jack's mother. This is very strange. She had a try, of course, neither of them could get the blade through the carrots. But I, th I think we must have used up all our strength somehow, said Jack's mother. I know what to do. Take some money from the jar, go to the butcher's. He is a big, strong man. He'll never run out of strength. And even if he does, he's got that big meat cleaver of his that could chop through anything. Get some sausages and we'll have them for breakfast. So Jack took a few coins from the money jar and he headed into the village. He went into the butcher's shop and he asked for a string of sausages. Jack, I'd love to sell you a string of sausages, said the butcher, but I can't. Why not? asked Jack. Watch. The butcher lay a long string of sausages on the counter. He took his mighty cleaver in hand, lifted up high, and he brought it down on the string between two sausages. And when he lifted the cleaver, Jack saw that the sausages remained attached. It's the same with the steak, said the butcher, shaking his head. Put some steak meat on the counter, brought this cleaver smashing down on it, bounced off the meat. I'd have more luck chopping iron than meat today, said the butcher. I couldn't crack an egg back at home, said Jack. I cut a carrot. The butcher shook his, shook his head again. 
Something strange is going on, Jack. It's as if, it's as if nothing will die. And with that, Jack understood what had happened. Jack ran out of the butcher's shop. He ran all the way home. He burst into his house and his mother sat drinking tea in front of the fire. Did you get the sausages? Mother, I've, I've done something I shouldn't have done. So Jack, Jack sat down and he told his mother all about his meeting with death. Oh, Jack, said his mum. That was, that was very brave, what you did. But it was wrong. Death is painful, Jack, but the world needs death. Death is what keeps the world alive. I wish my time hadn't come so soon, but if it's my time, it's my time. You have to let it be. Jack hugged his mother. They wept together for a good long time. Eventually, Jack stood up, took a deep breath, and he turned and left the house. He returned to the beach, found Death's scythe where he'd hid it in the sea, where he'd hidden it in the sea cave. And with a heavy heart, Jack reached into his pocket, took out the nut, and he opened it up. Death shot out and landed on the sand. He unfolded and unfolded and unfolded until he was his regular size and he got to his feet. The look he gave Jack could have melted bones. Sorry, Death, said Jack. Here's your scythe. Death snatched the scythe from Jack's hand. You have got some nerve, lad, said Death. I'm sorry, said Jack. I know what I did was wrong. The, the world needs you. I know that now. It does, said Death. Whether it needs you is another matter. I don't mind if you take me, said Jack. Just don't take my mother. Your mother? Yes, said Jack. You were going to see her. Death burst out laughing. Oh, Jack. Oh, you daft wee idiot. He cuffed Jack over the head. I was only going to stop in and see your mum for a cup of tea. Really? Yes. It's not our time yet. I'm on my way to see this old guy in the next village. He's on his last legs and he's looking forward to seeing me. Oh, said Jack, feeling rather foolish. Um, well, in that case, I'll walk you to the house. So Jack took death home to see his mother. He made them all a cup of tea and some eggs on toast. And they had a good gossip before death went on his way. That's the end of the story. Thank you. What a wonderful story. I hadn't great, isn't it? Oh, it's uh, oh yeah, it's so rich and with imagery and with meaning and a sober but beautiful reminder. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. such a, a beautiful 
you know, light and playful, yet really touching and moving uh, exploration of this idea and this truth that um, death is a part of life and life is a part of death. And uh, like what we were talking about earlier of um, accepting, embracing the whole cycle. Mm -hmm. I like that it, you know, it touches on that, but in a, in a fun way. Yeah, it seems we've made a whole circle, which is, uh, which is great. <laughs> yeah. Whole circle in discussion. Thank you ever so much for, for the beautiful story and the story wisdom that you've shared with us. Um, and before we go, I wondered if there's anything else you wanted to tell and if you can tell our listeners more about where they can find your work and more information about you. Yep, sure. Uh, so the best thing to do is to go to my website, that's houseoflegends.me, M-E, and there you find details about uh, my books, uh, about my podcast and uh, all the other things I do. Um, I'm quite active on Instagram now, so if you're on Instagram, uh, please follow me there, and I'm putting stuff up every day related to uh, the things that we're talking about. Um, if you are interested in storytelling yourself and you'd like some coaching, I do coaching groups as well as one-on-one -on -one sessions. I've got two groups on the go now. Uh, so you can find details about that uh, on the website. I also do book coaching. So if you're writing a novel or thinking about uh, writing your first novel, uh, I can coach you through that as well. I've also got a mailing list. Uh, so the best way to keep abreast of all these different things is to join the mailing list. Uh, there's a sign up on my website and you get my uh, ebook Silverborn for free when you join the list. And that's a little collection of old stories from the north of Scotland told through the mouths of the characters in the Shattering Sea. And yeah, just have a listen to the podcast if you enjoy Nana's wonderful podcast. Uh, hopefully you'll enjoy mine as well. Thank you. And your, your podcast is beautiful. And uh, it's full of more stories like the one you've told, which you told in a, in a beautiful way to transport you from this world and then safely back, back to it. Um, so it's been really exciting having you. So thank you very much, Daniel, for, for joining me here today. And I look forward to, to joining you in the world of stories again soon. Thank you. Yeah, I look forward to running into you again too. Thank you. Thank you for joining me in the Story Apothecary for healing and medicinal stories. I hope we'll meet again. Until next time.